0: Good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. I thought we would begin because we're on our seventh week of walking through the book of Matthew. Could we begin with a little review? And so if you will, reach for your Bibles, go about two-thirds of the way through it and find the book of Matthew. Or if you've bought your Matthew journal with you, we would love for you to use this as well and find the book of Matthew. And let's let's do a little bit of just a few minute review do you remember when you would get to the end of the semester and your teacher would review all the material that you had covered this far this is what we're about to do in a few minutes and so Matthew chapter 1, we learned with the genealogy that this is about a new Genesis, it's about a new beginning, it is a rebirth, and we discover in the first chapter of Matthew that this Jesus is Emmanuel. that he is God with us, that he's a son of Abraham and he is a son of David. In other words, this one who is to be born is both to be a king as well as the father of many nations. At the end of chapter one, we discover his name, that his name is Jesus. And that means that God rescues or that God saves. And so he has come not only to be with us, but to save us. And because of this rescuing work of God's presence, people like the wise sages, the wise magi, will come from all over in order to bow down and to worship this king. And that this savior, we find out in the second half of chapter 2, is the one who will not only meet us, but rescue us from places like slavery and tragedy and obscurity. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus spent the vast majority of His life being unknown and unseen, and He meets us in those moments. In chapter three, we find out that holiness comes from belovedness, that at the end of chapter three, we have the baptism of Jesus, that the heavens open, that the Spirit descends like a dove. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the nature of grace. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't accomplished anything yet. He hasn't done anything to warrant what you would think would be this favor from on high. And yet God gives it to us before we could even ask it. And this is what we receive in our baptism as these families have experienced this morning. That's the grace of God. In chapter 4, we find that this holiness will be tested. And there will be tests of desire and tests of control, and tests of glory or ambition, and yet Jesus is successful in the wilderness where the Israelites failed. And yet Jesus calls us and says, follow me, and so we can turn our lives around, we can repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is available to us right now. That this is the gospel that Jesus preached, the accessibility and the availability of God's reign and kingdom, available to us all. Chapter five, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with the Beatitudes, the blessings. He's reaffirming that Abrahamic promise that I am going to bless you in order to bless others, to be the blessing. And so because we are blessed, he has made us salt and light. He has made us both to be a preserving agent as well as a shining agent in the world. And what he declares in the Sermon on the Mount, his thesis is, is that our righteousness will be categorically different and greater from any other religion or religious practice in the world. It will be inside out. And in this righteousness, look at chapter five with me, there will be no anger, there will be no lust, there will be no broken promises and no broken relationships. There will be no revenge and there will be no resentment. When you get to chapter six, there's no showiness, there's no insecurity, there's no consumerism, there's no materialism, there's no hoarding, there's no fear, there's no anxiety, there is no worry. And by the time you get to the chapter that we're looking at today, it's building in a crescendo that there's no judging, no wastefulness, no callousness, there's no exclusion, that there is a way to live where everyone treats another person in the way that you would like to be treated yourself as the golden rule. And so this... This is the new start. This is the new hope. This is the new promise. This is the new blessing of what we can see and experience in the availability of God with us, rescuing us, summoning us, calling us, teaching us, blessing us, and showing us what life can be. Did you get all of that? That's the first seven chapters. There's going to be a test. But it is not going to be a test of retention. It is going to be a test of traction. One pastor says you only believe in that part of the Bible that you actually do. I don't know about you, but I've been captivated by the news and the simultaneous tragedy and inspiring stories of what's happened in response to what occurred on February the 6th of this year. The significant series of quakes that rocked a fragile and war-torn portion of the world. Entire buildings and communities decimated. As of the news of this morning that I looked up, over 46,000 people have died. And in the midst of the rubble of those experiences, there have been those glimmers of incredible rescue and hope, like the story of this man who is in the hospital on the left there who was trapped under rubble for 278 hours, and yet he was saved, and that's his wife and his young child brought back to him. In the midst of all of the tears of both reunion as well as loss, there is another emotion. The emotion is anger and frustration. This is not the first time that an earthquake has hit this area. There are appropriate building codes that take place in that country to make sure that they would not experience this level of tragedy. I want to show you a picture of a building before and after. This was a brand new building that was built supposedly up to code and what it was like after the earthquake. There is so much corruption, there is so much lack of enforcement And the point is, it doesn't matter how good your standard is and how right your standard is if you do not put it into practice. And to fail to do so is a matter of destruction. For seven chapters, Jesus, through Matthew's gospel, has given us a vision of a new way of living. And I am captivated by that vision that Jesus brings. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us a warning. And his series of warnings is, if you don't put this into practice, it's not gonna matter very much. That's how you will be tested. That's how I will be tested. Because one day the storm or the shaking world will occur. And the question is, are we able to stand? Matthew chapter 7, starting in the 13th verse. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Because on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them... I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his home on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When I was 15 years old, I was finally old enough, according to the standards of the class, to take a photography course. And I was so excited to sign up for this photography course. My father loves photography, and it was something that we could share together. And so I was excited to sign up for it, and when I signed up for it and got there, I was disappointed in the first class that they weren't going to allow me to shoot any pictures in color photography, only black and white. I was thinking to myself, what kind of backwards looking course is this? Of course, we've invented the film to be able to to have great color pictures. Why should I have to only work in both black and white? And so I kind of, as nicely as possible, went to the teacher to petition that I alone, as this 15-year-old with a course full of adults, ought to be able to be the exception to the rule and that I ought to be able to take pictures in color no matter how old the people of the class were and they wanted to do it the wrong way. And the teacher very lovingly turned to me and said, if I let you start with color, you will never learn the power of contrast. Do you know the power of contrast? Let's show some pictures. The contrast of the darkness of the subway tunnel with the whiteness of the walls and the man who is standing waiting for his train. The contrast of the light and the dark on the two different sides of the sand dunes in the Arizona desert. The contrast in the lines of the face of a tiger. And the contrast between the darkness of the background and that of a flower. If I let you start with the color, you won't see the contrast. And so for class after class, and moment in the dark room of sitting there with the chemicals, which probably are going to give me cancer one day, watching the pictures develop and seeing a phrase that I learned, and I don't remember where it originated, that contrast is the mother of all clarity. This or that. And when you have these contrasts, sometimes you're able to see things for the first time. Such as the brilliance of Jesus as he ends the Sermon on the Mount, that he has four illustrations, four series of contrasts to help us to understand how we might be tested in our moment in time, that there is a wide gate and a narrow gate, that there is bad fruit and there is good fruit, that there are fans of Jesus and there are followers of Jesus, that there is sandy ground and foundation and there is a solid foundation. Let's talk about each of these just ever so briefly. The first contrast that Jesus paints, the, the black and the white together, is that of the wide gate and the narrow gate. And what Jesus said is that the road is really wide and it's really easy to follow that road, to follow the crowd through the big gate. When you were to come into the city of Jerusalem, there were all kinds of different gates. And many of those gates were very large in nature. And then there were some other little ones that are small in nature. The sheep gate is one of the smallest gates. And not everybody is going to know where the sheep gate is. Only somebody who lives there, only somebody who walks those paths and is a part of it. Those are the, the narrow ways And what Jesus is saying is it's really easy for you to just follow the crowd. It's really easy to walk into the city with the big gate. It's only a handful of people that know the access that can come from the small gates. What's the difference between the two? Jesus is saying is one of those leads to destruction and one of those leads to life. The first warning that Jesus provides to us is that one of the dangers of the way that we can live our life towards destruction is through a series of mindlessness. The wide gate, the wide road, just following the crowd and going with the flow, almost always taking the easy way out is surely to lead to destruction instead of life. The second contrast that Jesus provides is between that of bad fruit and good fruit. It is a a test of deceptiveness. For what we see in the bad fruit and the good fruit is a famous phrase that we even continue to say today. Have you ever heard of the phrase, a wolf in sheep's clothing? This is where that phrase comes from, from the Sermon on the Mount. That on the outside, it looks really good. It looks like it's just a little lamb and it's safe. And yet, it's not really a lamb. On the inside, it is a wolf. And so what Jesus provides in this contrast, in this warning, is that you need to look beneath the surface, that you can't just look at the outward appearance of another person to be able to ascertain whether it's true or not and whether that person is living the right kind of kingdom life. What you have to look at is not that outward appearance, but the fruit of their life. And of course, that fruit is an explosive image in Scripture, one that we care for deeply with the fruit of the Spirit being love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And so, what we need to be looking at when we are looking to our leaders, when we are looking to others, and even when we are looking to ourselves of, are we really living the kind of life that God has in store for us? Do you see that joy? Do you see that peace? Do you see that patience? Do you see that kind of fruit? coming from their lives. Because a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Kelly showed me the trailer of a TV show. I don't even want to mention the name of it because I don't want you to run out and watch it. And it was a show about religious deception. It's a fictitious show about a family that is... A televangelist kind of family. And how their public persona, when the camera is on, is one thing, and yet behind the scenes, they are something else altogether. One of my greatest lifelong ambitions is to be the same person that you see on a Sunday morning that I am behind closed doors when no one is watching. Because the summons of the gospel is that ethics is what you are doing when you think that no one else is looking. And so there's the wide gate and the narrow gate which is a test of our mindlessness. Then there is bad fruit and good fruit, which is a test of our level of hypocrisy and deceptiveness. And then the third thing is whether or not, and I'm borrowing Kyle Eidelman's language here when he says, are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus, which is a test of shallowness. The most haunting part of today's story, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these great things in your name? And Jesus says, I, I don't, I don't even know you. It is about a vibrant, trusting, relationship with God. It doesn't matter how many code words or great acts of service you try to do in Jesus's name. John Ortberg says, before you profess your love for God, you ought to at least stop and ask the question, do you even like God? Do you spend time with him? Do you attempt to learn from him? Do you honor Him, respect Him, obey Him? So the first test is about the going with the flow. The second test is about the wolf in sheep's clothing. The third test is about are we, are we just giving lip service or are we truly devoted disciples of Jesus? And then the fourth test is the famous one, the very last image on the Sermon on Mount. Where are you building your house? On a house of rock? or a house of sand because Jesus says it's foolish to build your house on the sand just about a decade ago um, Kelly was out of town and Kelly says that as a family we don't ever need to go camping together because camping for Kelly is the Holiday Inn as opposed to the Marriott Kelly refers to camping as strategic discomfort I love camping, I love backpacking, I wanted my girls to have an appreciation for going camping, and while Kelly was out of town, there's this primo camp spot, because all of the campsites are basically right on the beach in Orange County of Southern California where we used to live. And it was like trying to buy Taylor Swift concert tickets online. You would have to try to get, you know, to get online at exactly the right time in order to get a campsite. But every once in a while, somebody would cancel. And so oftentimes, in, in, in a time when Kelly was out of town, I would just, you know, every once in a while, just kind of go into the computer and check and see if somebody had let a campsite go. And sure enough, this one time, there was a campsite that came up. And so I want to show you a picture. This is Doheny State Beach. And this was the beauty and the majesty of where we got to pitch our tent. What a great place to camp. And so I'm even bragging a little bit. I texted Kelly a picture of the back of the minivan because I packed the back of the minivan. This is all of the gear. We had all of the snacks and all of the water and all the beach stuff. We were going to play bocce ball. We were going to have a great time. And here's what our campsite looks like. I mean, isn't that a great-looking campsite? I got the fire going. We're going to have some s'mores. Fantastic day. We have a great afternoon. So much fun. And it gets dark early at that time of year, and so we turn in. We're, we're asleep with the dog in the tent, everybody tucked into their sleeping bags at 9.30 at night. At about 10.30, the winds pick up. At about midnight, the heavens open. This is Southern California. It never rains in Southern California. And when it does, it's like a little Seattle mist. It's not like a thunderstorm. It is Pouring buckets from on high with gale force winds. You know how the tent is usually like this big? Our tent was like half of the size. The poles seemed to be bending. And at about 2.30 in the morning, because I can't sleep, I'm I'm starting to get a little grumpier. At 2.30 in the morning, I feel this little tap on my forehead. And it's our oldest daughter, Danica, that looks to me and says, I have to go potty. I said, nobody's watching. You can go outside. There's plenty of sand. Just go ahead and go. I'm not nature peeing here. You have to take me to the bathroom and not wanting to face the wrath of my wife for scarring our children. I'm grumpily putting stuff on the rain gear, and it's just like we're opening up the tent, and now Ashby and the dog are waking up, and we wander over through the the gale and the sideways rain, and she goes to the restroom, and we get back into the tent, and I'm soaking wet now, and I'm in a bad mood, but right before I'm about to close the tent, I look over and I realize why this campsite was available. Let me show you a map of where our campsite was at Doheny State Beach. We were at the lowest possible point for where the drainage would take place of where when the the tide comes in and if a storm were to rise, we were going to be overrun and I could see the water now having been a long way away was about to overrun our campsite. We were about to be flooded. And so I have to make a strategic decision of whether or not to stay and to move the tent or to just pull the ripcord on this whole thing at 3 o'clock in the morning and pack it up and go home. I vote for the latter. I have the kids and the dog get in the minivan and I'm barking out commands and they're in there. And um, have you ever tried to disassemble an eight-person sized tent in Gale Force Winds? I was like thinking either A, I'm going to get pulled off the ground or B, rotator cuff surgery is in my near future. And so I am using all of the colorful theological language that is at my disposal from what I learned in seminary as I try to disassemble this tent and I try to shove it in the car And as I'm getting ready to do all of this, I am just in such a foul mood, and I'm thinking to myself, I have ruined this day. My kids are never gonna wanna camp. And then there's some lightning, and I happen to turn at just the right moment, and I can see in the side of the van. I'm thinking that the kids are gonna be lying down and asleep in the back of the van. They're not. Both kids with their faces pressed against the window, and they are laughing hysterically. (laughs) as they watch me disassemble the tent. (laughs) Here was the contrast. Not just a contrast of where your tent is actually residing, which was a bad idea. But the contrast of children who were living in the joy and the security of their father and someone who was not. For the better part of six or seven hours, the fruit of the Spirit was nowhere evident in my life. The foundation was on sand. I was a wolf in sheep's clothing. I was walking the easy path of the wide road. And I was a person that gave lip service to God, but my heart was far from Him. you will be tested. And so I just want to put this up for a moment to give you a chance to ponder of maybe, is there something that you need to do? Because James, the brother of Jesus, warns us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. And I find that in moments like these, we need to be reminded of the importance and the impact of the contrast of building our life on sand or on the rock, that the wrong choices and decisions and commitments we make of failing to live up to the standards of what God has for us are real. And in spite of all of the destruction of the world, there's still hope of a God who continues to rescue, continues to save, continues to pull us from the rubble of our lives. My friends, as you think about your own life, And the nature of the God that you say you proclaim to believe in or the good news of Jesus Christ, think about this. You could be really good at explaining everything that just happened in the first six or seven chapters of Matthew, but if you don't live it out, it doesn't matter. You will be tested. The wind, the rains, they will come. Where's your foundation? Let's pray. Our loving God and Father, thank you for the beautiful nature of the sweeping scope of your gospel. And even in the midst of tragedy, God, how you were with us and how you will rescue us. Help us to tap into a little bit of the holy frustration of our own family of faith, not living up to code and not putting it into practice. Let us heed the warnings that lead to destruction this morning and build our lives around you and your grace in the right way. Help us to see the clarity of the contrast and forgive us for our mindlessness and deceptiveness and shallowness and foolishness. Help us to know when the rains fall and the winds blow we can live in the joy of the Father. And We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people's said.